0: Hello, my friend, this is Joe Bakhmutsky, and welcome to Simplify Cancer Podcast. Today I'm talking to Bogda, who is a medical oncologist who has done some fantastic research. And Bogda shares some great insights if you're facing cancer right now, or if you're building a better life after cancer. Bogda breaks down what to expect when you're talking to your oncologist, as well as closing the loop with the general practitioner and other specialists like you might be dealing with. So Bogda is super passionate about creating bad outcomes for folks like you and me. So I'm sure you're going to get a lot out of it. Bogda, thanks very much for taking the time to to do this. I really appreciate it.
1: Sure.
0: Uh, Bogda, as a medical oncologist, you often have to give people the bad news. How do you do that? How do you tell someone that they've got cancer?
1: Sure. Uh, I mean, the first thing to say, Joe, is actually medical oncologists don't do that very often because we don't diagnose cancer. Very often surgeons do. So we tend to be the second person who raises the question of cancer, or we might be the person who would see the patient after somebody said, this is very likely cancer and you need to see somebody to do the sort of final diagnosis. So many of our patients are Prepared for the bad news when they see us, so it's not like we uh, deal with issues in a completely unexpected scenario. But what we do quite a lot of is um, we might be the people who talk to the patients that the status of the cancer has changed. So we might be seeing somebody who we're treating with the hope that we will cure the cancer, and then it becomes apparent that the cancer is no longer curable and growing, and we may need to tell that news, and that's often a very distressing scenario for all involved. How do you do that? Uh, The first thing to say is that you have to be honest about what you're trying to tell, and you have to be accurate about your information. So there's no point talking about something where you really haven't done your homework. You need to get your facts right. You have to have all your information available. Uh, There's no point starting the conversation and saying, Actually, I'm still missing for one extra test because that really is distressing and confusing. What I tend to do is I tend to try to prepare patients that a difficult conversation is coming. So I might say, look, we need to talk about such and such. Is it OK if we talk about it now? Because that gives uh, a person an option to say I really don't want to talk about it now, or I want somebody else to be with me when, when we're talking, or I, I'm, I'm finding it really surprising. So, so kind of give themselves some room to deal with things. Preparing and sort of warning that something's coming is important. Secondly, when I talk about what's happening, I try to keep the language quite simple. Sometimes in oncology, we tend to use very misleading terms like growth condition, uh, disease is changing, and you kind of don't know what that really means. So I think that if you if you really need to say something, try to keep it as accurate and as simple and as brief as you can. So I think cancer is growing is pretty unambiguous, but things are not looking so good could mean anything. Uh, so I think you need to be quite precise. And I tend to move on to what can be done quite quickly, people are interested not just in what happens, but what that what can be done about it. And that allows them to focus on something positive. And usually there is a lot that can be done. So I try to sort of tell what the situation is, identify what can be done. And I finish off by trying to draw on strengths of the person I'm dealing with, because uh, dealing with cancer is not the first stress that people experience, they would have had lots of lots of stressors and disappointments in their lifetime and they've gone through them and managed things. So it's useful to say when you were in a very difficult situation before, how did you cope? Did you rely on friends or family? Did you uh, take some time to plan how you're going to approach it? Did you get professional help? What worked for you then because we're going to use those resources this time because we know they worked for you before and they should help again. So I think there's a number of steps to use and uh the key issue is honesty simplicity and focus on what can be done as opposed to what can't be done.
0: That makes so much sense Bogdan and I'm so glad that you brought up the idea of not using the medical ju- <laughs> medical jargon. <laughs> I use um I mean I work uh, I spent a lot of years working in IT and I know that I had to adjust my language when i'm talking to someone who isn't a specialist in it in order for them to really you know speak the same language uh, yeah. so uh, th- that's really important and so is there is there a way that you would recommend for people to prepare right because i know i know from experience that when you go to see your oncologist or or another specialist like you show up you have no idea what to expect your rack, you forget half the stuff you wanted to ask, and the other half you forget the minute you walk out the door. Is there anything that people can do to prepare themselves?
1: One of our very simple strategies is to bring somebody with you because they know you and they recognize when you're looking a little bit distressed, and you may not necessarily have the courage to. Stop the conversation yourself, but somebody sitting next to you would say, hang on a second. We really didn't understand that bit. Or can we talk about, go back and talk about such and such? So having a, a person to help you is, uh, is often a useful idea. So a friend, a family member, somebody that you can uh, sort of bring with you is a, is a useful strategy. The second thing is to think about what it is that matters to you. What sort of questions would you want to ask? It's often useful to have a list. Many of my patients would have a conversation with me and then would say, hang on a second, let me look at my list. And they will have a quick look and say, okay, we've covered everything, but we haven't covered this. Can we go back to that? So when you're stressed and your mind tends to wander and you don't know whether you're going to cover everything, think about your list and, uh, and check against it. Um, and the other thing is don't be afraid to ask to meet again. It's, it's not that the conversation happens only once and it's very useful to, to go back and, uh, and ask, you know, could we meet and discuss this again? Or is there anything that I could read about what you're just describing? If you're describing particular cancer treatment, uh, can I have any ret- written information about it? If it's any types of supports, are there any written resources that I could look at in the comfort of my own home? So there are many ways of meeting people's needs, and that doesn't have to happen in one encounter.
0: That's such a fantastic point, Borda, because I guess sometimes people can feel so powerless that they don't really have any control. And, and this really, what you're saying, really really puts the, uh, puts the ball in your court when it, when it comes to dealing with cancer.
1: I think it's worth remembering that for an oncologist, it is good It's helpful to have an informed patient. So it is the interest of the oncologist to keep you informed and content that you have all your needs addressed appropriately. Because when people feel like they're not really well understood, their needs are not met, they're often more distressed. They often don't know how to manage uh, their treatment and their condition, and they're more likely to have problems. And, you know, nobody needs problems. So so I think it's in everyone's interest to make sure that everybody's happy.
0: Yes, absolutely. Bogda, do you believe that people with cancer get the support that they need mentally, emotionally, socially? Uh,
1: not always. I think that it depends on how how good the process of identifying what the needs are Sometimes oncologists don't ask, sometimes patients don't tell, and sometimes a bit of both. So oncologists tend to not ask about problems that they feel ill-equipped to manage. So for example, if they're not very comfortable talking about emotional problems, they're not going to go there. Uh, Whereas oncologists who are comfortable about talking about emotions are more more likely to say, how are you doing? Um, Yeah. One, one example is that uh, I I have heard, heard stories of doctors, not necessarily oncologists, who would say, if the patient's crying in my office, that means that they need to, you know, see a health professional because that's an emergency. Uh, whereas there are many, many of us, including myself, who think, well, you know, my office is a very safe place to cry. So if crying is what you need to do, that's okay. It's not going to kind of tip me off or get me, get me to change the subject. And I think that's relevant because we know that if we train oncologists to be more skilled in asking the right questions and listening to the answers, then more issues are uncovered and those issues are more likely to be addressed. Equally so, patients often don't talk. Sometimes they talk about things because they embarrass. For example, a female patient might be Uh, uneasy about talking about sexual difficulties with a male doctor and vice versa. Um, Sometimes patients feel that their concerns are really not oncologist's brief. So let's say they might have financial difficulties and they may say it's not the doctor's job to fix it. So oh. I'm just not going to mention, I'll just grin and bear it. Sometimes they have an inaccurate expectation of what uh, the experience should be like. You know, 50 years ago, having cancer treatment meant that you vomited nonstop. If a person believes that vomiting is your lot in life, you wouldn't raise it as an issue. You would just keep on vomiting because that's what you expect as normal. So again, this is where preparing patients for what is considered normal and what is not normal can help. So, so I think that there are lots of reasons why people's needs may not be well met, but we know that they, they are not always met and there is certainly room to move for all of us.
0: Uh, absolutely, Bogdan. And is there something, I guess, in the curriculum? Like, if you're studying to become an oncologist, is there, um, <laughs> for for want of a better word, is there like a subject that you would, you would take as part of your course that would be like emotional side of dealing with patients?
1: Well, there is a number of curriculum items that relate to to it. The first one is that oncologists, medical oncologists in Australia are expected to undertake mandatory communication skills training. And that includes breaking bad news and sort of identifying issues and so on. So oncologists are supposed to develop some skills in communication. The second issue is that oncology training is a training on the job, which means that if your colleagues and your senior colleagues in particular notice that your communication skills or your awareness of patients' needs is poor, then that will be identified as a specific topic to address. There is a not necessarily new, but growing field of psycho oncology, uh, which allows oncologists to really get interested in sort of psychosocial needs of patients. There are some very good uh, training opportunities as well as research opportunities in this area. There is no doubt that. Different doctors have different affinity for the topic, but there is a certain minimum standard that is expected where oncologists are supposed to develop skills of how to communicate with patients effectively.
0: Oh, that's that's great to know, Bogdan. That's fantastic. So what I want to ask you as well is, you know, when it comes to people who are underprivileged and in terms of the support that they get, again, you know, socially, emotionally and mentally as well, what's your take on that?
1: I think that's actually a very important issue because we tend to often talk about cancer care in Australia as this wonderful, high-quality service available to everybody with excellent outcomes. But the truth is that people who come from disadvantaged populations, whether this is socioeconomic or a geographic disadvantage, their cancer outcomes are inferior and the needs are more likely not to be met. Um, and that is, again, for a variety of reasons, it is harder to access support in, uh, let's say, in rural areas or in disadvantaged populations. It is harder to ask because people often feel less entitled. Sometimes they don't have the language skills. Sometimes they don't have the awareness that they can ask for support and clinicians may not necessarily, uh, customize the inquiry to those needs. So for example, uh, you know, but for majority of patients, it might take 20 minutes to talk about patients' needs for somebody who comes with a language barrier or particular cultural background. They may need twice that time, and the oncologists need to be aware that 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 needs to be provided. In certain cultures, there are particular cultural expectations of how you communicate issues. There are language issues, so there are there are again skills required, and those skills can be provided. And there are ways of sort of bridging the gap through, in particular, through cancer care coordinators and patients' advocates who support patients. So there are ways of addressing this problem. But I think that we, we actually do have quite a long way to go in addressing the needs of patients from disadvantaged communities.
0: Well, hopefully we can, we can do more on that front. But if, if you're someone with cancer, and, and I know you've, you've obviously seen a lot of folks who go through it, how would someone go about finding better support, like both from, from people in, in, in their life and, and from other channels here in Australia and around the world? Are, are there any resources that are overlooked that people may not know about?
1: Well, I think that there is a number of resources um, and I think it's worth starting by thinking about the fact that there are lots of resources within cancer but there are also resources outside of cancer field and both are relevant depending on what the need is. Within cancer one of the nice resources that hails from Australia is the findingmyway.org.au website. It's a very kind of broad website that looks at support of people who are cancer survivors that was developed here in Adelaide and provides a lot of information on various aspects of lifestyle. The cancer councils in each state provide excellent resources that are cancer specific and those resources are available both online, telephone and in person. And most of the cancer facilities around the country have good awareness of what's available both locally and remotely for patients to access that is within cancer. But I also wouldn't want to discount the non-cancer resources and they include going to your local library, talking to your local GP, joining in a meditation or relaxation uh class, learning about journaling, connecting with your peers, meeting your sort of friends for coffee or going for a walk. So those are also very important. And many people who deal with their own cancer journey often don't want to spend their entire time talking about cancer. So often very nice to actually switch off and talk about something else. So I think that in cancer, uh, as health professionals, we often tend to think about the resources available just within the cancer space. But there is a wealth of resources outside of cancer that are just as relevant and just as helpful that could be used as well
0: absolutely and i think that a lot of people might be overlooking that and probably um they're not using it to, to the best of their abilities in terms of being able to open up and talk about these these issues and, and i'm sure that there are many concerns that i had to talk about do you notice any patterns any similarities like and what would you say to someone who who is afraid to bring up something personal something that they feel awkward about whether mm. whether that's a, with a medical specialist like yourself or or maybe with someone in, in their life like a family Member or a friend?
1: Mm. Um, I think that when we're talking about patterns, it's worth remembering that we tend to operate within the patterns we always have. That means uh, some of those are very helpful and they work very well, but we also tend to repeat not necessarily helpful patterns. So, examples yep. of it are people who say, the way I cope with stress is by keeping busy. So, there are certain things I'm just not going to deal with because I'll just get busier and uh, <laughs> never. never Never go there, and I think it's uh, it's it's worth finding a little bit of time for a bit of self reflection of how am I traveling on the regular basis? And if you're traveling great and all is fine with the patterns that you're using, good for you and keep keep at it. But if you find that things are not so great, then perhaps the way you're going about them requires some uh, refreshing. And and this is where getting some professional help is often useful because uh you can count on confidential advice. You don't have to feel that you owe the professional anything for providing service. That's what they're there for. Uh, whereas with a family member, you cannot be confident that they will always hold the information confidential and you may rely on their generosity to give you time, And their skills may be variable. So I actually think that when in doubt, uh, seek some professional help. And there's a range of health professionals that could assist. Many people tend to underestimate the expertise of their GPs and of nurses, both within cancer services as well as general practice nurses. And these are people who often are very happy to help and very astute with regards to what can be done. They just may not necessarily be aware that there is a need some of us come across as extremely capable and having no worry in the world where, in fact, internally we might be suffering. So I think it's, it's worth flagging that there is a need to a trusting health professional and you might be surprised how much help you'll get.
0: Yeah, you're so right about that because so often we forget that people just can't read your mind. Like Unless you specifically tell someone what's going on in your head, people just won't know.
1: Mm, Exactly. And and yes, sometimes you may wish to talk about issues that are difficult. So you may not necessarily wish to spell out what the issue is. But it is worth saying, look, I've got some concerns that are confidential. Could I talk to you one thing that um that sometimes people do whether when they come to my office they would have this this consultation where everything is going really well and they would reach for the door and say and by the way can i just ask you one thing and that's where the interesting stuff really comes out so it's 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 useful to ask because yes nobody you know the crystal ball is usually broken we cannot sort of look at a person and say (laughs) we
0: know do tell (laughs) Absolutely. And, uh, do you mentioned that, uh, earlier that it's okay to make another appointment to ask more questions, to clarify things, which I think is fantastic because that's really important. And what if someone has questions in between appointments or, or, um, after a procedure or after treatment? Um, is it okay to ask, uh, uh, an oncologist like yourself for an email address, for example?
1: A different different oncologists have different preferences. I give my email address to all my patients. Uh, it's on my business card. And my email address is commonly available because all you need to do is sort of look up my name at Flinders University and all off it pops out. And that is the case for most oncologists in academic settings. So, it's It's perfectly reasonable to give patients your email address um as long as you're one of those people who access their emails you know I think if you if you're one of those people that who never answers emails then you probably shouldn't offer giving emails to patients because creating you're creating an unrealistic expectation. I quite like responding via email because that allows me a chance to respond outside of my work hours sometimes it's very hard for me to stop my work to pick up a phone call but it's okay to sort of you know answer emails at the end of the day however not every question should be answered by email so i'm very happy to receive emails but very often my response to the email would be we need to meet and talk about it because certain complex issues are not very easily explained by two sentences in an email uh, it's actually much easier to sort of to to meet and talk about it face to face. So an email is a very good way of organizing an appointment, but it shouldn't be a substitute for an appointment.
0: That's a, that's a great point. And if you refer your patient to another specialist, like say a surgeon, um, how do you choose that person? Is it uh, is it a part of building up your network over a period of time, or is there some sort of an online forum? How does it work?
1: Cancer care is intrinsically multidisciplinary, so every single one of us works as part of the broader team, and most of that team is built within the institution we function in. So a medical oncologist would work in a team of medical oncologists, and Connect with the team of surgeons and team of radiation oncologists and supported by a team of nurses, etc. etc. And uh, within those teams, you get to recognize how people operate and you would recognize their strengths and sometimes limitations and the best fit for the patient. So, for example, I may look at a particular surgeon uh, from the perspective of Are they very direct and therefore really really a good fit for the patient who likes a lot of very direct information? Or would they be too blunt for somebody who is a little bit more anxious and maybe there is a different fit, a better fit for somebody else? And, of course, I get very particular about the skill of the people I work with. I mean, I'm, I'm very lucky to work in a wonderful institution where I genuinely trust the skills of, of people that I work with and I've been at Flinders for more than 20 years. So I've had plenty of track record to learn about it. But I think I often reflect about how sometimes it is challenging for me to verify expertise of, let's say, general practitioners that I've, that I haven't worked with, let's say in a different part of country, South Australia and how important it is to verify that they have the interest and the know-how and the dedication to support my patients. And you gather that from telephone conversations, correspondence that you exchange with them. Um, so there are ways of kind of telling whether the person that you're working with is the person you would want to entrust your patient to.
0: That makes so much sense. And how how often do you get like complicated cases where you perhaps want to take you to a group of experts to get their input and and how does that process work
1: complicated cases happen all the time because every person is complicated and uh very often the cancers are complicated uh we routinely review management plan for most of our patients as part of the multidisciplinary meeting so uh, that's often a routine perhaps not a hundred percent but but very close to it that treatment plan would be reviewed as a group for example in our department all the new patients decisions are discussed once a week where we say we've seen this patient this is the story this is our plan and that allows other oncologists to say but have you thought of such and such it's a way of kind of ensuring that we really offer the best practice to to every patient Secondly, sometimes we will have a patient uh, who might have a really complicated situation that requires additional expertise, and there are groups of uh, clinicians. For example, in Adelaide, the breast oncologists work together as, par- as part of this sort of state network. So uh, not only do I talk to my breast oncology colleagues at Flinders, I can talk to the breast oncologist for the entire state to get advice. And uh, sometimes there might be a really unusual situation where there will be a particular expert in the world for an unusual cancer and I might contact them specifically for a specific case. Uh, We always tell patients that we will make contact to discuss the situation with someone else so they are not surprised. But oncologists in general are very generous with advice and usually – I, I honored to be able to contribute to someone else's care, and very happy to share share their expertise. And there's only a benefit from it. I can't think of any downsides.
0: That's that's incredibly reassuring to know that there's there's such, such a great process around it. And uh, you know, Bogda, I'm I'm a big fan of self-help, and it's been uh, so fantastic to read about finding your way. Uh, your project, which looks into resilience for cancer patients can you talk about what that's about and what have you discovered
1: sure so our team at flinders led by dr lisa beattie had developed an online self-help and support resource called finding my way it's available on the website findingmyway.org.au it's freely available and it's a modular set of resources that support people who are dealing with cancer treated with curative intent in a number of areas that include emotional, physical, practical concerns to assist them in better better functioning, less distress. We had tested the website as part of the randomized study. We enrolled nearly 200 people in a randomized setting to either use the website with all its content and some practical activities attached to it or to have access to the website in a just sort of more limited, uh less hands-on way so you could read their content on the website but not necessarily do exercises that are attached with it. So both groups had access to the website in some capacity but we compared the sort of the full resource against uh, let's say a more limited uh, resource and what we had found was that Those people who use the full resource had better emotional functioning. Over time, everyone's emotional functioning gets better, but those who use the resource actually function better in terms of their emotions. And what was really a surprise to us, but a very pleasant surprise, was that they needed less access to health care services elsewhere. So this resource, which you could use in the comfort of your own home for free, improved the well-being and allowed people to use less mm. services elsewhere, which is very important, especially for those people who have difficulties accessing other services. So we're very excited about this resource, mm. and as a result, it is now available freely in Australia and around the world, and it has been taken up by colleagues around the world, in other countries, in the United States, in the UK, in Germany, Romania, to kind of adapt it to their local needs.
0: Yeah, that's that's fantastic, Bogda. It's one of those things like, like, for example, Cancer Connect that I only found out about after my treatment that I'm going, why did I know about this earlier, you know? Yes. <laughs> yes, and Bogda, I know that survivorship is an area that is very close to your heart. So what are some of the challenges that folks typically have after treatment?
1: Depends a little bit on what treatment and what cancer they had. Uh, and depends on on an individual. But broadly speaking, there is a variety of of challenges that people face, including physical, for example, fatigue is a very big problem for many cancer survivors, as well as side effects of various treatments that might be physical disability after surgery or heart problems as a result of chemotherapy treatments or others. There are emotional concerns and fear of cancer recurrence is probably the biggest there, um, as well as anxiety, depression, grief, um, as well as practical concerns, issues relating to return to work, managing financially, sometimes changing your employment status to something different for lots of reasons. So there's a, a number of issues. The good news is that for overwhelming majority of cancer survivors, their concerns diminish with time and uh, their quality of life improves. And there are many cancer survivors who do very, very well very early or straight away. Um, and there are plenty of cancer survivors who consider the cancer experience as something that while they would never w- would have wished for it, it also had some enriching qualities uh, to their life. But we do know that there are many needs that need to be addressed, and we do need a structural way of addressing them.
0: And is there such a way? Is there, is there a way, like an integrated way? Do you think that um, looks at uh, addressing those needs?
1: Yes, there is. Um, Clinical Oncology Society of Australia has issued has issued a model of cancer survivorship. It's available on its website. And it outlines all the different elements of survivorship care and that includes assessing the needs, developing a treatment summary and a care plan that, that identifies what the issues are and how best to address them through a variety of resources that might be available. The next step is really ensuring that cancer services provide and deliver that Type of needs assessment and a care plan, uh, and that's the implementation of it. It's really the work that we're working on at the moment.
0: Yeah, that's a fantastic book. There, and I know that you are passionate about shared care. <laughs> uh, can you talk about uh, what that model is uh, is like, and uh, what do you believe is the best approach?
1: I believe that we need to start from the premise that it takes more than one person to support a person of cancer, and. A person with cancer usually has other needs other than cancer. Certainly uh, many people with cancer also have heart conditions, diabetes, lots of other health problems uh, that oncologists may not necessarily be very well skilled at managing. So it is a given that some of their care needs to be delivered by others, most notably general practitioners. So if we were to deliver care through a variety of people, that that care needs to be shared somehow uh, between all those different individuals. The bit that I am passionate about is that we are explicit about it, meaning we agree that that takes more than one individual to deliver care and that we are very clear of who is responsible for what aspects of care and then that clarity of a plan is also clear to the patient and acceptable to the patient. Um, Sometimes I find it frustrating that the whole discussion about shared care is just a discussion between an oncologist and a GP without any consultation with the patient. Uh, Or sometimes that there is an assumption that everybody knows what they're supposed to be doing but no explicit agreement. So I think shared care can be very useful, can save patients from unnecessary appointments and extra parking that, that, uh, that cost them extra money. But I think that to deliver good shared care is a process that involves some investment of time to clarify roles and ex- responsibilities.
0: Absolutely. And what about integrated care? Is, is that something different?
1: I think integrated care is has got a lot of definitions uh, and many, people, many of us think that they know what integrated care is but when you really get into the nitty-gritty, different people believe different things. I think that the term integrated care really refers to the quality of the overall care that the individual receives from the individual's perspective. And very often what integration means to people is, care that is connected and coordinated. So an example of care that is not very well integrated is imagining that the person has got three specialists and a GP and they see a specialist number one on Monday, specialist number two on Tuesday, specialist number three on Wednesday, the GP on Thursday, and every single doctor asks the question about what did the other doctors say. And there's no communication between them. And if you think <laughs> yeah. that that sounds strange, I'm afraid that does happen. Yeah, in right. The <laughs> healthcare providers should have a clear plan of how they work together, how they communicate their findings, who's in charge for what. How do you tell that the care is simple, not excessive flow smoothly and seamlessly. It's not an easy task to achieve, but I think it's a very reasonable aspiration to have.
0: Absolutely. And I think that really ties into what you mentioned earlier about defining roles and, and responsibilities. What do you think is a, a practical way forward? How do you define those responsibilities? Is it like a centralized thing or or is it down to like each individual person like yourself uh, uh, talking to like let's say a general practitioner and, and having that two-way communication uh, how would that work well
1: i i think that this is where the patient is the key because ultimately it has to be acceptable to them so for example i sometimes have patients who i really need to share their care with a general practitioner and the patient says i don't like my gp and i don't have another one well i have to start by negotiating with the patient about getting a GP because it has to be acceptable to them. So I really see that the patients, empowering the patients to be uh, kind of a uh, deal breaker with regards to what is acceptable to them is a very good start. They will identify who their team is and they will tell me who they see as the most kind of relevant lead to lead the team for a particular purpose. So I think that that those kind of basic building blocks can be started with. We have figured out in oncology how to bring together medical oncologists, surgeons, radiation oncologists and we do it quite smoothly, but I think we need to broaden our horizons and we need to start bringing in GPs and cardiologists and rehab specialists, people who are just as important but often don't sit at the table in cancer care. They kind of a little bit invisible these days and i think that we need to make them a little bit more visible but we can again draw from the experiences that we've had in doing that for the more traditional cancer disciplines 20 years ago
0: absolutely and i think that just needs to be in place because i i know that i was lucky i had a, a fantastic gp and a fantastic urologist and really uh, incredible oncologist but i'm not sure that they ever talked to each other you know
1: yes yeah Exactly. But I can tell you that one of the highlights of my last year of work was I convened a multidisciplinary meeting between a cardiologist, endocrinologist, palliative care physician and myself, for a patient who had a lot of general medical problems, as well as cancer. And we needed to figure out a clear plan for her that actually was not terribly relevant to cancer because cancer was the least of her problems, but was very relevant to her well-being. And we basically organized a teleconference because we were all in a different part of the city. And we talked for an hour about what we collectively can do and identified who would be responsible for what. And one of us uh, met with the patient and sort of said, you know, collectively this is what we can do and this is what we can't do. And that meant that she had one consultation and advice from all of us. And we were very clear of our respective strengths and limitations. So that was, I know that it can be done. It was sort of me testing the waters and I'm certainly hoping to do more of it.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic, Bogda. I know you're so passionate about finding better ways to do things and and, and improve outcomes for people. How hard is it to incorporate research that you do into your practice?
1: <laughs> it's it's not very hard at all because my research originates from the clinical problems that that I experience when I see patients. So the research needs and the need for research solutions are right there in my face uh, every day of my working life. But at the same time, there's not enough hours in the day. There is just uh, so many things that one could do and so little time. So it's hard and easy all at the same time.
0: That's great. And Bogdan, when it comes to someone who made it past cancer, and and I guess now if they want to move forward and have the life that they want, what sort of advice can you give them?
1: I actually think that the advice you give to somebody who had uh, survived cancer is the same as advice that you give to anybody for rich and fulfilling life. And I have a little acronym um called READY, which stands for Relationships, Exercise, Active Mind, Diet that's Healthy, and the Yearning. And what I mean by yearning, a sort of a passion and purpose in life. Uh, and I think that if you can kind of focus on those five things in your life, uh we know that all of them have a role to play in keeping you well and cancer free they also very important in general lifestyle which really means that there is cancer is not that unique in in the issues of health and well-being the directions for happy and healthy life are very much similar in cancer and life in general wow
0: well, re- <laughs> red is a fantastic framework <laughs> Thank you so much, Bogda. It's been some great advice and thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it.
1: It's a pleasure. Lovely talking with you.